0: Scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? He bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about three thousand souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and fellowship to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I think Steve has said this before, but Arlene is a model of how to read scripture. So you should teach a class. (laughs) We uh, We can all learn from you. So thank you, Arlene. It comes alive in that way. Okay, we're looking at Acts 2, and we're going to focus on verses 42 through 47, and we sort of backed up to draw some of the connections together between the past, um, what we looked at last week with the actual Pentecost event, and what's to come. Um, I used to teach high school English, as most of you guys know, and when I started teaching Shakespeare, I noticed something very quickly. Students fear Shakespeare. It doesn't take too long to pick that up if you're teaching high school. And uh, here's why. This is what I learned. I learned a couple things. First of all, they fear Shakespeare because they have a conception of Shakespeare and understanding him that involves sitting alone in their room with a book perched in their hand and sort of hacking it out by themselves and figuring out what it means. And to them, to students, to teenagers, um, maybe even to some of you, that looks like very difficult vocabulary. (laughs) And it looks like having to rely on all sorts of historical backgrounds and little notes that are on the page and paraphrases and things like that. And students feel like, hey, I can't do that. And so what they do is they usually give up, and then they develop a view that says something like, hey, Shakespeare is only for the elite. Shakespeare is only for bearded college professors who are sophisticated and wear glasses. So they have kind of an individualist and an elitist view. I have to do it by myself. I can't, therefore it's only for particular people. So to dispel this myth, what I used to do is every time I taught a play, any time I began a play, it didn't matter what play it was, it didn't matter the class, it didn't matter the ability level or anything, no matter what class it was, I would sit them all in a circle and I would pick one scene from early on in the play that was easier to understand and I would print out a copy of that scene and we would read it verse by verse and every student was involved. Every student had to read one verse. And then we would just talk about it. Hey, what do you think that word means? Oh, well, I've heard this one before or maybe it sounds like this. We just kind of work it out. And then the next thing we would do is we would say, okay, um, what do you think is happening in this scene? And then the students themselves would just kind of talk it out and wrestle it out. Well, I think this is happening, I think that's happening. This is what looks like is going on. And what would eventually happen is we would come to the place where we were forced to kind of push the desks back and act out a few scenes. You guys are probably horrified if you ever had an English teacher like me. You're, you're now horrified. But um, we, you know, you come to a place where a guy says it's bitterly cold outside, and the students are like to understand that. What you have to do is kind of put on a jacket, look cold, and kind of shake a little bit. Or if a is in the beginning of Midsummer Night's Dream, says full of vexation, come I. You know, it's a guy who's angry. He's dragging his daughter along. And as they participate, they start to see what's actually happening. In the play. And some of my, actually, um, if I could say this as an aside, some of my best moments, uh, my favorite memories from teaching are of students doing these little impromptu scenes. I can imagine them like hiding under desks, afraid of ghosts that weren't really there. I can remember, um, you know, guys, like a six-year-old boy, when given a chance, will always put on a dress. <laughs> I don't know if you know that or not. <laughs> every time, every time, they will always do it. And, um, you know, trying to figure out how lightning would work. Anyway, those are some of the best moments. But here's the point. This is what I think the students learned. I think they learned two or three things. First of all, they always learned that they could understand Shakespeare. It was possible. It was a possibility. Secondly, they learn if they participate, understanding comes through participation. So getting it up and acting it out is a lot better than sitting alone at home in their room. And the other thing that they would learn is this. And this is the most important thing for the message today. They needed each other to understand. They needed each other more than they needed notes, more than they needed the teacher, more than they needed historical background. They could make sense of Shakespeare as long as they had each other. And so today, um, as we conclude our series on the coming of the Holy Spirit, we're looking at the community that is shaped and that is empowered by that spirit. And here's what I think happens. I think when we read that little bit in Acts 2, 42 through 47, that um, explanation of what the community looked like, I think we are a little bit like teenagers approaching Shakespeare. Okay, hang with me, please. I think we think it's impossible. It looks impossible. It looks unattainable. It looks too good to be true. It's um, Okay, if it is true, then it's only for a select few. So you may say something like this, hey, that could only have happened in the early church. it possible now. Or you may say, I remember this one time back in college when I had the perfect group, and we realized true heavenly community, but now I'm in real life and I can't possibly find that again. Or you may just give up and say, that's for professionals. That's for the select few. That's for like elite, superpower, super Christians who are kind of like modern day monks who are going to pull themselves out of the world and into some kind of commune or something. But the problem is, if you think any variation of those thoughts... That can cause you to pull back from any real attempts to promote true community. And in turn, what happens is you just start to heap the guilt and heap the fear um, on top of yourself. But here's what Luke says. Luke says, no. Luke says, he makes it really clear. He says, I'm writing a history. Okay, in Luke 1, he says, I'm writing a history. In the beginning of Acts, he says, I'm writing a history. And he says, these are the things that characterize a spirit-filled church. And he says, you, church, have that same spirit And so these same things are made possible by the arrival of that Holy Spirit that was poured out by Jesus. And he's not saying, he's not saying that the church is is perfect, that we can have a sinless community, or that we're going to have a homogeneous community that looks entirely identical, or that we're somehow can avoid problems. I mean, if you read through the New Testament, it doesn't take you very long to see that Luke and other writers all agree that they are facing serious problems, serious sins within the church. But what he's saying is that this diverse community fights together against sin and struggles against oppos- opposition as they are empowered by his Holy Spirit. I think one of the things that happens to us is we allow our differences, we allow our fear we allow our sin to divide us. And when it does, we don't have the resources that we need to follow Jesus faithfully. But what we're saying, what we've been saying in the series is the Spirit has arrived. The Spirit has arrived. That's good news. And you are empowered by the Spirit. So he's calling you to work towards unity. He's calling you to promote unity. He's, tr- he's calling you to strive after this community as you participate actively in it as you need each other. And what's going to happen is you're going to find that there are barriers in the way, and we'll have to work through and discuss how to remove some of those barriers. So this is what I want to do this morning. I want to look at X 2, and I want to do three things, basically show you that, yes, true unity is possible. Two, see if I can look back here. Two, take a look at the specifics of what this unity would possibly look like. And three, then we want to talk about the barriers that exist and what we can do to remove those barriers, the things that are preventing us from true community. Okay, first of all, community is possible. Okay, true community is possible, a unified community is possible, but not in your own power, only in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here's what we're going to have to do. I want to draw some connections before we get right into verses 42 through 47 between what we looked at last week and what's happening this week. So we're going to have to do a little bit of a review of Pentecost and cover some of the same material that Steve did last week. But it's to make a point, Luke did not accidentally put this picture of community right after Pentecost. He did it on purpose to show us some of these connections and what they are. Okay, here's the deal. Hang on to this. True community can only occur where there's complete and total acceptance, okay? True community can only occur where there's complete and total acceptance. That's true in friendships. It's true in marriage. Just think about that for a few minutes. And what happens is um, Pentecost shows us that true, total acceptance only comes in Jesus Christ, okay? Hang with me for a minute here, all right? True community can only occur where where there is complete acceptance. True acceptance only comes in Jesus Christ. So so we know this. In his death, in Jesus' death, and in his resurrection, God the Father says, I will take you as you are. I see you as you really are with all of your sin, with all of your guilt, with all of your shame, with all of the hidden things that you may be thinking about even now that no one else knows. And he says, I'm going to take those things, put them onto Jesus Christ, he dies and raises again to life, destroying the power of all those things, guilt and the sin and the shame and the death. And God the Father says, I will accept you then as sons and daughters of the living God, as my own sons and daughters. So what he's offering to you in that acceptance is complete and total freedom, acceptance that you couldn't find from your parents. That's acceptance you couldn't find from sex and your lovers. It's, it's acceptance you will not find from friends. And what happens in Pentecost is that the Father sort of um, broadcasts that acceptance in a dynamic and dramatic way. Okay, so go back to Pentecost. What are the two miraculous signs that they see? First of all, they see tongues of fire descending on tops of all, the, all, all of the individual believers who are there. And then the second thing is they're speaking, suddenly they start speaking in tongues so that everybody understands each other in his own language. The tongues of fire indicate, and I alluded to this during the prayer at the end um, of last week, if you were here, the tongues of fire indicate the removal of God's future judgment from those who believe in Jesus Christ. Okay? they, They indicate the removal of future judgment. So listen, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us deserve future judgment because of our sins. Okay? And all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Bible, that judgment is shown in terms of fire. The God's wrath comes in a fiery flame. But what Acts 2 is saying is that instead of the judgment that you should receive in a final fire, you receive, if you believe in Jesus, domesticated tongues of flame resting upon you. Domesticated tongues of flame. So what's interesting is, one way of thinking about this is, you either receive one fire, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or a second fire, which is the fire of judgment. And so what's signified in Pentecost is acceptance. It's the removal of the possibility of future judgment. You have been made clean, restored. You don't need to fear anymore. You don't need to fear your guilt and your shame. And then look at the second thing that happened at Pentecost. The second thing was speaking in tongues, and that indicates the removal not only of future judgment and the threat of that judgment, but the confusion that is caused when we are judged by God. What this looks like is a reversal of um, the Tower of Babel. So does everybody remember Genesis 11? You had um, a whole group of um, sinful humanity who kind of comes together and they build this tower in their arrogance and pride and they think, we can build one that reaches up to heaven and we can glorify and worship ourselves instead of God. And then what happens in Pentecost is God the Father says, I'm going to reverse that. So what happens is, uh, if you'll remember, um, as they build the Tower of Babel, he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to judge them by separating them, by giving them different languages, by causing confusion to exist among them. And so that sort of confusion um, exists. And what happens in Pentecost is the Holy Spirit comes and says, I'm going to remove that confusion. I'm going to remove that um, inability to relate to one another and to know one another. And so that means that only in the Holy Spirit does God make it possible for people to understand one another. Only in the Spirit is true community even possible. Sorry, having a lot of trouble with the microphone today. Okay, what this means is that the Holy Spirit, as Steve reminded us last week, is always pointing us to Jesus. That's what Peter's sermon was all about at Pentecost, okay? His sermon reminded us that Jesus fulfilled the promise of the prophets. He did what David could not do. He was raised to life and that he poured out his Holy Spirit. And here's what I want you to get a hold of. In giving us his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Jesus, what Jesus is doing is he's identifying with his people and he's gathering them into a new community, okay? Jesus is accepting them, he's opening his arms to them, and he's drawing them together to one another. And what that means is this. It actually has some radical implications. If Jesus identifies with you then you have to identify with one another. If Jesus identifies with us, we have to identify with each other. Okay, so think of it this way. Imagine you have two people. Okay, I'll call one, um, this is so generic, I'll call one Sarah and one James. Sarah is a Christian, James is a Christian, okay? So you have Sarah here, and Jesus has forgiven Sarah. He has accepted Sarah. And you have James, and Jesus has forgiven and accepted him. It's inconceivable for Sarah not to forgive James because she has already received the forgiveness and the acceptance that comes through Jesus. It's also inconceivable for her to, to not to forgive him because he has the spirit of the living Christ in him. Okay, Do you see how Jesus identifying with you must go out and change the way that you relate to other people? And here's kind of the catch of this. That's true even if those two don't like each other. So it's true for you, too, even if you don't like each other. I heard one person put it this way. The church um, basically binds me to love, sacrifice, and serve you regardless of what I think of you. I think part of our problem is we're always evaluating everybody based on our preferences, based on our taste, based on what we like, rather than on our commitment to Christ and what he's doing in this new community. Rather than choosing to love others, but he is calling you, To love people who are different than you, who have different tastes than you, who have different backgrounds, who come from a different economic status than you, who are of a different race than you, who are older than you, who are younger than you, who are um, problem people, who are annoying people. He's calling you to love others because they are a reflection of who you are in Christ. Okay, let's look at... um, That that brings us really to Acts 2, verse 42 and 47. And so we want to look at what this true um, spirit-filled community actually looks like. All right, take a look back at the passage. You see it there. You may have your Bible out in front of you. And we're going to look especially at verse 42. Okay, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That means that their unity was rooted in authority rather than preference. Sometimes I think that we sort of feel like... um, True community means just sitting around shooting the breeze. True community means sharing one ideas and accepting everyone else's ideas equally. But this is not sort of like um, a a, a literary seminar. This is not really a commune. Um, They're not making everything up as they go along. Instead, um, they are allowing the teaching of the apostles to shape their common life. The risen Christ is guiding them towards truth, and he's protecting them from error. By his spirit. And the spirit is working through the leadership and through the, the apostles. Okay, we could have a sermon on almost each one of these. So I'm going to go kind of quickly. I just want you to get a sense of the, of the whole. Okay, he also says, look, that they devoted themselves to fellowship. That means that their unity was rooted um, in the identity of the group rather than in the identity of the individual. In what they had in common or what they shared, and if you flip through the New Testament, you're going to find that the church shares all sorts of things. They share their time, they share their possessions, they share in the Spirit, they share in Christ's sufferings, they share in Christ's glory. And this sort of commitment is really foreign to um, sort of Westerners in general, and it's, it's really hard to get our minds around. So, for example, like, how many of you um, obey the speed limit for the good of humanity, I should just say, how many of you obey the speed limit at all? (laughs) I don't see hands. Why not? Because we're Americans in the 21st century, right? The speed limit is getting in my way of going where I want to go. Right? Um, but this is a, is, is the total opposite of that. It's a consideration of the group over the individual, which is foreign to our way of thinking. And sometimes this has seeped into Christianity. This has seeped into the church. Um, one author that I was reading this week, Richard Lovelace, describes the church since the medieval period as little individuals thinking they have kind of like an individual pipeline of grace to God. And, you know, you might imagine sitting at home alone in your room reading your Bible, sitting alone at home praying, sitting alone waiting for God to work and waiting for God to do something. Sometimes that's our mentality, but if you read through the New Testament at all with any sort of integrity, what you'll see is we actually learn about who God is, we learn about his grace, we receive his grace through other people around us because they also have the Spirit of Jesus, they have something that we don't have and that we can learn about the risen Savior Jesus Christ. And so what we're setting up here is sort of like imagine a picture. I think our lives today are like a a person, imagine a person in the middle of kind of a wheel with all sorts of spokes going around it, and we have the individual. This is who I am. I'm defined by my personality, you know, where I stand on the Myers-Briggs scale. I'm defined by my um, temperament. An interesting note about the Myers-Briggs, I am an ENFP, And Jeff Bradford was an I-S-T-J. <laughs> we, we, had, we had a little conversation about this, so I have the exact opposite personality as he does. But anyway, um, that's, that's, for, that's free of charge. But think of how ready we are to define ourselves by those personality traits. Why are people even so concerned about taking these tests? Because we're infatuated, we're obsessed by what I'm like. I want you to know who I am and what I'm like, and that means my personality, my taste, my preferences, and all those things. So the individual is at the center, and then we have kind of like, here's my church over here, and that kind of intersects with who I am. We have my family over here, that kind of intersects with who I am. I have my job over here, I have my little Bible study that I go to here, my community meeting. I have my, um, where I shop, and our lives feel totally fragmented. Right, because the purse is in the center, and we're trying to connect all these things. How can they possibly connect? So the picture that the New Testament presenting is of a new identity in being accepted in Christ. You have a new identity. The old is gone. The new has come. Behold, you have partaken of Jesus Christ. Therefore, that new identity, it sort of trumps all the old identities. It trumps your race. It trumps where you're from. It trumps personality and preferences and taste. And the New Testament presents us with a model, and it's a model right here in Acts 2, of church in the middle community of the spirit in the middle and then how i spend my money flowing out of that how i choose where i live flowing out of that how i choose how i relate to my family flowing out of that and the real challenge which i will present some ideas on but not any sort of grand solutions on is how we move from seeing ourselves in the middle and everything else sort of disconnected around it to seeing our identity in god in christ and with one another in the middle and having our decisions and everything else flow out of that Okay, Luke also says, uh, uh, real quickly, I just want to, um, he says they, they um, also dedicate themselves to the breaking of the bread, which probably refers to Lord's Supper, um, to communion. That reinforces the idea that we belong to something larger than ourselves, that we were connected to Christ and to each other. Um, and the next two are really interesting, though. Prayer and the sharing of everything in common, because it really gets to the heart of these two pictures that we've been talking about. Luke says they devoted themselves to prayer. That means their unity was rooted in dependence upon God rather than independence. Okay, And you can kind of ask yourself, if you look at yourself as the individual in the middle and all these other things that you're doing on the outside, what's one of the first things to go, even in the church? I'd have to say it's probably prayer. Um, I know for me it's probably prayer, but these guys are, are rooted in prayer. They're grounded in prayer. Read over the, the, the book of Acts. And you'll see how many times these guys are getting together, how many times they're praying, and then how many times things are happening. They get together, Jesus comes, and Jesus ascends into heaven. They get together and they pray, and they choose new replacement leaders. They get together and the Spirit arrives at Pentecost. They get together and they pray, and the Spirit fills them with boldness. They get together and pray, Peter's released from prison. These guys are praying all the time together, together, not alone at home in their rooms, not alone at home in their rooms, Prayer is an indispensable part of our spiritual lives. And it's something that cuts through that the sort of superficial conversations and gets us into um, true unity and true fellowship and true commitment to one another. Um, nothing, can, nothing can do that more than depending upon the spirit in prayer. And then finally, if you look, it's not actually in verse 42, but if you jump down just a little bit, it says they, um, the believers were together and they had all things in common. I would consider this yet another mark of what the church looked like, and that means that their unity was rooted in generosity rather than indulgence. Do you see the picture that's painted here? Group identity, generosity, others, dependence on others from outside versus selfishness, privatization, individualism, independence. And that means their worship extended to their financial lives. Aren't those decisions that we often consider private? I thought of this. I was thinking of this just this morning as I was thinking about the sermon. Um, Imagine you went to a home meeting, and instead of, for the home meeting, like you looked at a couple verses for James, and then everybody got out their budget and you compared them. Could you imagine that? I thought I'd get a bigger shock. <laughs> that to me, I mean, like, what is more private than how you spend your money? That's my money. It's my money. I spend it the way I want to. What if we all sat down and, and, and put our budgets out there, put them together, and said, hey, uh, would you? maybe you should consider spending your, your money on this. Or we said, hey, that guy's in debt. What if three of us over here help him pay off his debt so that his wife can stay home and take care of his kids? I mean, do you see what can happen? Do you see how radical some of that is? See, what's happening here, sharing other things in common, extending to their financial lives, this is a picture of the only metaphor I can think of is a family. Like, imagine, uh, when, whenever I go away on vacation, I'll always bring my kids back a book. So I go to Chicago and I'll get them a book that's about Chicago so I can kind of show them the places that I've been. Or I'll go to Los Angeles and I'll come back and sh- you know buy one book. And then what the kids obviously ask is, Whose book is it? (laughs) Abby's like, it's mine, you know, and she puts it on her shelf. But whose book is it? It's ours. It's our book. It doesn't matter. You can read it for a while, and then you can have it, and then you can take it over here, and you can have it here. It's it's the family's book. It's ours together. Now, this is not communism. (laughs) Even if I might like it to be, (laughs) come talk to me about my socialistic tendencies later. (laughs) Now, (laughs) Julie's like, I can't believe you're saying that. Um... We could talk. We could talk about politics and economics and all that stuff later. Um, But there is absolutely no, nothing in this passage or anywhere in Acts that suggests that this was forced giving. Okay? This is an overflow of the heart. This is generosity that pours out of a life that has been accepted beyond what is possibly believable. You've you've forgiven my sins? You've forgiven my sins, my deepest, darkest secrets, pain, pain suffering and strife i'm gonna hold on to my cash i'm gonna hold on to my cash and like the real convicting biting question um comes when you ask yourself when's the last time i saved money for something besides myself you see oftentimes we have surplus money we have extra money and then we save it and we say okay i'm saving it so that i can buy a bike or i'm saving it so i can buy a tv or i'm saving it so i can buy another edition of shakespeare's works You can guess whose list that is. But what about saving it to give it away? To give it away to somebody else? That's radical. That's a radical idea. That's an amazing idea. What if I said, I'm not going to buy a case of beer this month, but instead of saving that money to give it to something else for myself, I saw a guy walk out the back of the church. (laughs) He's like, no. What if, you know, uh, I could live a month without beer. But not just to spend that $40 on yourself, but to spend it on somebody else, to give it to those who are in need, who are around you. Um, That's the kind of commitment that these guys had as they were sharing all things with one another. There's kingdom work to be done, and people are in need. That affects our time, our prayer life. That affects how we spend our money. You see, what these guys are getting into is um, they are entering into, this is entering into the very rhythm of life. I had a college uh, professor, uh, actually a seminary professor of church history, who used to say, how do you take over a kingdom? You take over a kingdom by taking over space and time. And he was talking about how the Roman Catholic Church took over the pagan world. What did they do? They put their, they celebrated Christian holidays on top of the pagan holidays, and then they built their churches on top of the pagan temples. (laughs) And then all the people had nowhere to go and they came into the church, right? You take over space and time But what's happening in Acts 2 is something even more fundamental than that They're entering into the very rhythm of life The very space and time and where I see that is in all this eating together What's more normal? What do we do as a normal everyday rhythm? More often than eating we eat breakfast we go to work we eat lunch we go to work We eat dinner we go to bed We eat a snack we eat, we eat, we eat. And what are these guys doing? They're eating together. That means the very rhythms of their lives were woven together. They had been captured, whether in public, whether in private, they were in prayer, they were worshiping, they were teaching, they were communing with one another. All right, let's think a little bit about liberty. Liberty is a church that is built upon these core values. It's If you look on even on the website, the, the values are gospel, community, and mercy, Okay, and they they come really, you know, right from this passage here. And that means that if you rehearse the history, you'll see that a group of people living out in the suburbs rearranged the rhythms of their lives to come into the city. And God honored that choice and that commitment and that filling with the Holy Spirit. And he's grown a church. He grew a church. It's here. You guys are here. You know, I was thinking while we were were worshiping today, you can't do this alone. You can't worship the way we did alone. You just can't do it. You can listen to a lecture in your car, but you can't have communion together alone. You can't take the Lord's Supper alone. Anyway, the church is here. I'm very thankful that you guys are here. And then there's other churches that spun off. So you have Liberty East, you have Center City, and there's plans for more. So built into the very fabric of your identity is this sort of community. And it means that many of you live in Brewery Town, in North Philly, and I keep saying this, I'm just amazed at the folks who will live in places that I never imagined living, which reveals all of my idols of fear. All of my idols. And and I'm amazed. You guys have moved together. You've rearranged your lives. The rhythms of life to be together. And it means that we emphasize home meetings and coming into covenant, not because we're trying to be draconian, not because we're trying to be authoritarian, but because we know that in these things, God can use his spirit to pull you out of your selfishness, to pull you out of your isolation, to pull you out of your aloneness and out of your pride, which is a very serious danger to us. And what you have to ask yourself is, so what I'm saying is, yeah, yes, we should celebrate that liberty is built upon these foundations. And then we sort of ask ourselves, okay, where are we now? What's happening now? Somebody asked me at lunch the other day, this, I'm going to be about as candid as um, I can possibly imagine being on, and, and it's on tape, <laughs> so it'll, be on the, it'll be, even be on the Internet for the entire world to hear. Um, but somebody that I was eating lunch with asked me the other day, Dwayne, is liberty going through an identity crisis? And I thought that was a great question really interesting question. And I said, well, I'll answer straightly. Um, Let's see. You've almost doubled in size in the last couple of years. You moved from uh, the middle of Fairmount at the Philadelphia Mennonite High School over to uh, the edge, what's really the edge of North Philly, right? Um, At the Berean that we meet here. You've had um, your lead pastor and founding pastor leave. A fact that is probably getting more difficult now than it was even two months ago when you kind of braced yourselves for what's going to happen. So we know that. I know that. And that's not to mention all the kind of constant normal turnover that goes on with liberty with people moving in and moving out. So, like, one, one answer to the question is yes, right? One answer is yes, and that's okay. That's okay. But what, so what you have to ask yourself is, okay, what do we do in the face of that? Because you're tempted probably to feel isolation. You're tempted probably to withdraw. You're tempted probably to feel confusion and to overemphasize, you know, maybe the what you may feel is lifelessness or apathy. And I was thinking about this this week and I thought part of the solution is wait, right? Part of the solution is have patience. Part of the solution is a new pastor is coming and we're pray and, and make sure that that waiting is not just waiting, but hopeful expectation. However, as I was saying this passage, I realized the mission and the vision of the church remains the same. You're being called by the spirit to love one another. And if you withdraw, if you withdraw from the community, you will not find a solution to these problems. See, the spirit is still at work. And what I would invite you to do is involve yourself in these discussions in a very specific, not a general way. So what I think we're doing, or this is what I've noticed, is we kind of talk about liberty in general. What's happening with liberty? What's happening with liberty? What I think you need to do is you need to bring yourself into community with specific individuals in this church and in this church body. Okay? So ask yourself the question, who can I love? Ask yourself the question, who can I pray with? Ask yourself, who can I forgive? Not only that, who must I forgive? Who needs to forgive me? Who do I need to confess to? Who can I teach something to? Who can teach me something? Who can I encourage and offer encouraging words to? What do I have to offer? Who needs money? Who's hurting? Who do I need to follow up with? And as the Lord draws specific people to your mind, that is the spirit continuing to work among us. It's the spirit continuing to guide and c- continuing to lead. And that doesn't mean that we become obsessed with ourselves as a community to the exclusion of anyone who is on the outside. On the contrary, as you love one another, look what happens in the passage. They, 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 they are, treat, they are um, perceived by all the others as um, having good lives and reputable lives, and dozens of people are daily drawn into their midst and into their fellowship and into their community. Out of the love for Jesus flows the love for one another and out of the love for one another flows the mission of the church to love all of those who are around us. You see, it's not all up to to professionals. There were only 12 apostles, but there were at least 3,000 people in the church. That meant there were a lot of people loving each other. A lot of people loving each other. Okay. What does this mean? Um, It means that you're going to have to remove barriers. So here's the prayer that I've been praying for myself. This is the prayer that I've been praying for you as we have gone through this series on the Holy Spirit. I've been praying, Lord, fill us with the Holy Spirit. Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Fill me with the Holy Spirit and fill us with the Holy Spirit. And you know what I get confronted with almost immediately as soon as I start to pray that prayer? Fear. The primary barrier... To the Spirit's work among us is fear. And I, I really think that that's what's happening in verse 43. In verse 43, he says, Awe or fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. What that means is there was a good, healthy fear that was coming down that was replacing a bad, unhealthy fear. What's the bad, unhealthy fear? It's the fear of other people. It's the fear of other people. We're afraid to let people see. Who we truly are, because we're afraid they're going to reject us. We're afraid they're going to hurt us. We desire their acceptance so much that we serve them. We, you know, we serve them by catering to their desires, catering to their tastes, catering to their views. But what happens when you do that is you set other people up as gods. You're worshiping them, fearing them instead of yourself. But what's the, fearing them instead of God? What's the right kind of fear? the right kind of fear that they replace this fear of man with is the fear of god it's fear of it's it's worship it's knowing that it's his gaze alone that matters it's knowing that he is the judge and as you invite the spirit in there's going to be a clash between those fears And the solution is really found in the passage that we printed up that comes before verse 42. It's what Peter calls him to do. He says, repent. Repent and believe. Repent and be baptized, actually, as Steve pointed out last week, which means join together in the community. The people were cut to the heart as they admitted that they were afraid of other people. And they asked specifically for God to say, Turn us away from the fear of others and join us with others who are around us. I think that um, our fear of other people manifests itself in other ways. I don't have time to go into these in any detail, but it may be a fear of commitment. It may be a fear that drives you to isolation. It may be um, relying on yourself. It may mean that you become um, feeling totally helpless, totally depressed, totally alone on the one hand, abandoning um, things that you know are true, or you're totally moralistic, on the other hand, thinking that you can do it on your own. It may turn you to become jealous of other people who are doing better than you. It may turn you into um, criticizing anyone who's doing worse than you. The classic example of that is the, the car driving example, which I'm sure many of you have heard before. As we're in car, it, it, Nothing reveals human nature more than driving in a car when you're caught in traffic. The person who is going too slow is not going fast enough, he's not doing the right thing so you criticize him and the person who is um, uh, the person who blows by you is obviously going too fast, right? Don't we do that? We're sort of like, my speed is the perfect speed. It's pride. It's pride. That fear uh, manifests itself in extreme defensiveness, extreme criticism. And if if you're feeling overly idealistic, make sure that you are not trusting in your own conception or your vision of what true community looks like. Submit to his vision of what community looks like. I guess what this means is seek the spirit and community will follow if you seek only the community and try to force it into looking like the way you want it to look, then you run into problems. An illustration of that is when... um, Julie, at one point in our marriage, was having trouble sleeping, and um, one of the things that happened is the more she attempted to sleep, the harder it became to sleep. Do you know what I mean? If you've ever struggled with sleeping, you kind of recognize that or are aware of that. And so the more she focused on the sleeping, the more the anxiety prevented her from sleeping. And it was sort of a a dynamic moment that the spirit came and taught her. Um, Basically, she, she said, I'm going to be content with what God has given me if that means I never sleep another day in my life. And she accepted what the Spirit had for her and where the Spirit was and was looking to him. And when that happened, she started to sleep almost the next night. I think it was the next night. Ask yourself now to... um, To turn to the Spirit. Invite the Spirit to search you and know you, to see what fear you're clinging to, what guilt or what pride, what jealousy, and believe that Jesus offers you total acceptance, a new life, and participation in his new community um, today. Let me leave you with this. Um, I was reading this week in 1 in Corinthians, Paul says, when you come to communion, recognize the body of the Lord. And we always often think, I guess I do, I at least just normally, normally and naturally do, think that that's the bread, seeing in the bread Jesus and seeing in the, in the wine um, Jesus' blood. But the commentator that I was reading said uh, that he thought what Jesus was saying is recognize the body of Christ, which is the group that is around you. So my invitation to you today is, um, I just think we do a lot of like, and I said this last week, during communion, we do a lot of sort of putting our heads down, looking real contemplative, meditating and praying. But look up and look at the people who are around you. Look at the people who are part of the church. Look for people you may need to go to after the service and say, please forgive me. Look for the people you may need to go to and say, um, um, I have sinned against you. Will you forgive me? Or uh, I feel like there's something between us. How can we be reconciled? seek to promote the peace and the unity of the church even as we join together in celebrating the Lord's Supper in submitting ourselves to who he is and what he's done um, in his spirit. So with those things in mind, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, the powerful way that you work by your spirit. We thank you that your spirit promotes a true community and we thank you that we can seek to promote unity by submitting ourselves to the spirit so we ask that even as we approach the communion table you would fill us with your spirit the spirit of the risen Jesus and that that spirit would take us to others and that we would not lose sight of what you were doing we would not lose heart we would not turn to complaining that we would not grow bitter with one another but that we would wait with patience, that we would wait with expectation, that we would long to see others come to know you, and that your spirit would be dynamically and dramatically at work among us. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's
0: proceed.